the thing that's coolest is is not what I say. After having these veterans from all kinds of different eras, some who were in combat and some who weren't, just coming in and telling their story. It's, it's worth the drive wherever you have to go just to hear these, you know, patriots, uh, young and old, frankly, tell the story. And you know, I I ask them questions like, well, why did you join? Um, and of course, some of them um, get to say, well, I got a letter from Uncle Sam that that. Uh, told me I was joining. And so, okay, no, I, I got that. No, you know, um, but, you know, these days, uh, as, as you well know, having been a recruiter yourself, it's, it's, it's all volunteer. Tiffany, before we do anything, I just want to thank you so much for this amazing opportunity to be in your room, to share space with you, and to and to be so proud of you. You are an amazing leader. I, I love you since the minute we met. And for me to for me to share my story with you and your audience, it's pretty special. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two.
Of course. My goodness. What about uh, you being 10, 20, 1,000 feet, you know, ahead of me in your journey? And here I am looking at you and going, oh, my gosh, I'll never be like Tiffany because I'm comparing my step one or my step two to your step 1,000. So comparison or comparing journeys, it's not really healthy because our journey is literally ours. Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast. Welcome. Today's guest on this week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast is United States Air Force veteran, Erica Kelly. This veteran's story is full of many golden nuggets of truth that it needs to be published in two separate episodes. This week's episode is the first of those two episodes featuring this amazing leader. In this first episode, we will hear Erica Kelly's journey leading up to her joining the military. Too many times, we compare our beginning steps with someone else's step 100 and find ourselves disappointed that we aren't where they are currently. Erica Kelly made it all the way to the top starting off her military career as a trained in Air Force Aerospace Medical Services, AFSC 4N0X1, and finished her 30-plus years of service as the 17th Command Chief Master Sergeant for the Air Force Reserve Command and the Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Chief of the Air Force Reserve. Her education includes a Master's Degree in Business Administration, a Bachelor's Degree in Criminal Justice focused in pre-law studies and languages. As a law enforcement officer, she was responsible to safeguard and promote the security of the workforce and used professionalism, accountability, and vigilance to serve in a multitude of roles which included, less lethal weapon instructor, emergency medical technician. As an executive director of the John Maxwell team, Erica was trained and mentored by John Maxwell and mentors of his world-class faculty, I am equipped with the tools, resources, and experience to help you and your team improve your productivity performance and profitability. Let's join Erica Kelly and Tiffany Martzchink in this episode of the Medal of Honor. Tiffany, before we do anything, I just want to thank you so much for this amazing opportunity to be in your room, to share space with you and to, and to be so proud of you. You are an amazing leader. I, I love you since the minute we met. And for me, to, for me to share my story with you and your audience, it's pretty special. Hello, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really like the metal of honor because I think that my life has been characterized by, by metal from uh, the time I was a kid up to when I retired from the Coast Guard. And starting when I was a child, I got interested in military service by chance. And I think that's an important theme in my life. Not everything was scripted goal that I had, I took advantage of opportunities as they came. It has changed everything about my life, how I perceive being a parent and how you align with mission. Um, I wish I had understood that more. So when I was a troop commander, 
Not that I'm, you know, there was only a handful of women in my unit to begin with. Only, I think, twice did two of my female soldiers became pregnant and had their children while I was a troop commander. You know, I would like to think that I didn't make it difficult for them, but I don't think I necessarily advocated for them and made it easier. And I wish I understood what it truly meant to be a mom in uniform when I was younger. Uh, Things that I would have advocated harder for them just because you just don't know what you don't know. Having kids does change the way you look at life, at the way you look at how you provide for them. And I've always said this, the military is a very unique organization. It's an amazing organization filled with opportunities, but it is a certain type of lifestyle and it's hard and it can be hard for your children. And I think those are things you got to think about. Besides me saying I didn't want to be a mom when I was younger, I wanted to achieve certain things in my career. And for me, that was being a troop commander. And I just felt that I had to dedicate myself as a leader to my soldiers. Army veteran Lieutenant Colonel, retired, Olivia Nunn is known for being an experienced director of communication with a demonstrated history of working in the government relations industry. Skilled in developing, executing, and assessing strategic communication, crisis communications, social media, media relations and operations management. She is a strong media and communication professional. Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn was commissioned as an ROTC military graduate through Radford University ROTC program in 2001. LTC Nunn has served in command and staff positions within the United States Army, including three combat deployments to Iraq. LTC Nunn has served as an official Army spokesperson, executive officer to the Chief of Army Public Affairs and as the lead strategic communication planner for the Office of the Chief of Army Public Affairs. She assumed duties as the Director of Communication, Soldier for Life in September 2018. Lieutenant Colonel Nunn's awards and decorations include the Bronze Star Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Iraq Campaign Medal with three campaign stars, Global War on Terror Expeditionary Medal, Global War on Terror Service Medal, Military Outstanding Volunteer Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, Army Overseas Ribbon, Meritorious Unit Citation, and the Army Staff Identification Batch. Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn holds a Bachelor of Business Administration in Management from Radford University, Radford, Virginia, a Master's of Science in Environmental Management from Webster University, and a Master of Professional Studies in Public Relations and Corporate Communications from Georgetown University. She is a graduate of the Command and General Staff College the Joint Intermediate Public Affairs Course, the Public Affairs Qualification Course, the Chemical Officer Career Course, and the Chemical Officer Basic Course. Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn and her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Lawrence Nunn, have been married for 15 years and have two children. Retired Army Chemical and Public Affairs Officer Lieutenant Colonel Olivia Nunn of the Washington, D.C. area. You know, a quick overview and broad stroke of 
you know, why I joined or what I've been doing. But essentially it was, that's what dad was doing. And that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea how long I was going to stay in. And the very best advice I ever got from anyone when I was a young second lieutenant, brand new poon leader, my company commander said, Olivia, you stay in the army as long as it's fun. And when it's no longer fun, you see yourself out. And honestly, I've had some good days and bad days, but for the most part, it's been fun. And now it's time for me to go. Jeff Moffat, originally from Detroit, Michigan, served in the Signal Corps of the U.S. Army, met his wife, who also enlisted into the United States Army's Signal Corps. His wife retired as a warrant officer. At his last assignment, Jeff was stationed at Fort Gordon, Georgia, where he served as an instructor at Fort Gordon's non-commissioned officer academy. Jeff Moffat is a telecommunications flash network professional with over 30 years of experience both in the military and civilian sectors. He obtained his Master's of Science degree in management from Southern Wesleyan University and can be found at the church he currently pastors, the Santa Missionary Baptist Church, which is a historic church in Augusta, Georgia. Veteran stories of personal courage, strength, and perseverance with you host, U.S. Armed Forces veteran, Tiffany Martzchenk. Webster's Dictionary defines metal as courage, vigor, and strength of spirit or temperament. A staying quality or stamina. It is the quality of temperament or disposition. Metal refers to the mental or moral strength and courage implying firmness of mind and will in the face of danger or extreme difficulty as an ingrained capacity for meeting strain or difficulty with fortitude and resilience. Spirit also suggests a quality of temperament enabling one to hold one's own or keep up one's morale when opposed or threatened.
Every U.S. military service member and veteran embodies these two truths of metal, that unique strength of spirit and the temperament needed to accomplish all that comes their way. Their stories are here to shed light on what life looks like in the military and veteran communities when the uniform comes off addressing issues and experiences and are still grappling with every day. These are their stories. Welcome to Season 2 of the Medal of Honor Podcast with your host Tiffany Martschink. In Episode 12, Tiffany Martschink talks with Dr. Carissa Larson. Dr. Carissa Larson, aka Dr. T, has become one of the healthcare and fitness world's most sought-after experts on movement health. Dr. Larson earned her doctorate in physical therapy from the University of St. Augustine in San Diego, CA. A former Marine Corps engineer officer and combat veteran, Teresa also played professional softball in Italy as well as semi-professional softball in the United States. Teresa founded Movement RX with her husband in 2013 in order to break free from the limitations that traditional physical therapy puts on practitioners and patients. The result was a company where skilled practitioners can authentically treat patients with the time, care, and movement education they deserve. Dr. Larson is determined to deliver movement and mindset health to as many people as possible with her team, including adaptive athletes, as she is an adaptive athlete herself. She is a motivational speaker for companies, helping individuals and teams understand that change is possible and leadership starts within it. She also presents on movement and mobility internationally and is the co-creator and lead instructor of the popular Functional Training for Adaptive Athletes program. She recently authored a memoir, Warrior, that was published through Harper One, an imprint of Harper Collins. In addition to her practice, wellness, and speaking efforts, Dr. Larson is a huge advocate for Challenged Athletes Foundation, Team Red, White, and Blue, a veteran nonprofit, National Eating Disorder Association, Crossroads Adaptive Athlete Alliance, and Resiliency Project. Teresa's mission is to deliver crucial information to people who need it the most. Anybody who has gone through loss, trauma, or a major change in their life needs to find their new normal again. Through Adapt Media and the My New Normal podcast, she offers stories of motivation and strength, overcoming hardship, and information on injuries from some of the top professionals and organizations in the world. She believes that our ability to optimally adapt to a new normal is a choice. As the Dalai Lama says, beautiful things don't come without some suffering. Welcome to Season 2 of the Medal of Honor Podcast with your host Tiffany Martschink. In Episode 12, Tiffany Martschink talks with Dr. Teresa Larson. Dr. Teresa Larson, aka Dr. T, has become one of the healthcare and fitness world's most sought-after experts on movement health. Dr. Larson earned her doctorate in physical therapy from the University of St. Augustine in San Diego, CA. A former Marine Corps engineer officer and combat veteran, Teresa also played professional softball in Italy as well as semi-professional softball in the United States. Teresa founded Movement RX with her husband in 2013 in order to break free from the limitations that traditional physical therapy puts on practitioners and patients. The result was a company where skilled practitioners can authentically treat patients with the time, care, and movement education they deserve. Dr. Larson is determined to deliver movement and mindset health to as many people as possible with her team, including adaptive athletes, as she is an adaptive athlete herself. She is a motivational speaker for companies, helping individuals and teams understand that change is possible and leadership starts within. 
She also presents on movement and mobility internationally and is the co-creator and lead instructor of the popular functional training for adaptive athletes program. She recently authored a memoir, Warrior, that was published through Harper One, an imprint of Harper Collins. In addition to her practice, wellness, and speaking efforts, Dr. Larson is a huge advocate for Challenged Athletes Foundation, Team Red, White, and Blue, a veteran nonprofit, National Eating Disorder Association, Crossroads Adaptive Athlete Alliance, and Resiliency Project. Teresa's mission is to deliver crucial information to people who need it the most. Anybody who has gone through loss, trauma, or a major change in their life needs to find their new normal again. Through Adapt Media and the My New Normal podcast, she offers stories of motivation and strength, overcoming hardship, and information on injuries from some of the top professionals and organizations in the world. She believes that our ability to optimally adapt to a new normal is a choice. As the Dalai Lama says, beautiful things don't come without some suffering. Yeah, so my name is Bill Anthes from New Jersey, and I joined the Army because I wanted to I wanted to serve my country, uh, but I wanted to go more than just kind of serving. I wanted to also test the limits of my, you know, mental and physical capacity. And so I identified special forces as the, the way that I could attempt to test those and was fortunate to, um, you know, have, I was fortunate to have a, a life of kind of training and coaches and mentors and, uh, that, that contributed to my successful completion of the Q course and, you know, eventually becoming a Green Beret, serving a fifth special forces group. And, um, yeah, now I coach people to kind of see their, I realize their own, you know, inner strength through physical, mental, emotional. Fit. When you, when you transitioned out the army, right? you had those, um, because you were an, a military spouse now, instead of just a service member, you were still kind of in that military community. Right. But if you were not married and you transitioned out. Oh gosh, that would have been just absolutely the pits. Then right. I would have really been even more lost mm -hmm. because at least I was still, still uh, part of a, um, of the military. I wasn't, I, I wasn't out in, a, in, in an environment that didn't understand me. Uh, and that's, you know, Hartford County, as much as I love where we live, there are so many good things about it. We've been here for, um, going, this is our 18th, our 14th, 13th year, I guess here, uh, 14th year. Uh, we came here in 2007. After I'd been here for a couple of years, I was approached by a local magazine, um, one of those small local, you know, hyper-local magazines that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but they asked me to write an article about what it was like to be in the, um, a military family living in Hartford County. Uh, and and Hartford County has had an army installation here, Aberdeen Proving Ground since 1918, 1919. And the majority of the county doesn't even understand that they live in a military community. Uh, and so it, it, that was the big challenge, big challenge to come up here to think, okay, we're right here on the installation. By the installation, my husband uh, still works um, as a, a, a DOD contractor. Uh, and the people in my community had no understanding of of my life, of our life as a military family. When, when you got out and your husband was still in and you had those Air Force spouses um, kind of help you out, take you under their wings, do you think 
that that um, spouse community helped you at all or, or um, made it easier or better in any way had you not been a spouse? Do you see what I'm asking or not really? Um, no, I'm no. sorry. No, it's okay. Like, so you when you when you when you transitioned out the army, right? You had those um, because you were an, a military spouse now instead of just a service member. You were still kind of in that military community, right? But if you were not married and you transitioned out, oh gosh, that would have been just absolutely the pits. Then right. I would have really been even more lost mm -hmm. because at least I was still still uh, part of a. Um, of the military, I wasn't. I, I wasn't out in, a, in in an environment that didn't understand me, uh, and that's you know, Harford County. As much as I love where we live, there are so many good things about it. We've been here for um, going. This is our eighteenth, our fourteenth, thirteenth year, I guess here, fourteenth uh, year. Uh, we came here in 2007. After I'd been here for a couple of years, I was approached by a local magazine. Um, one of those small local, you know, hyper local magazines that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but they asked me to write an article about what it was like to be in the, um, a military family living in Hartford County. Uh, and and Hartford County has had an army installation here, Aberdeen Proving Ground since 1918, 1919. And the majority of the county doesn't even understand that they live in a military community. Uh, and so it, it that was the big challenge big challenge to come up here to think okay we're right here on the installation by the installation my husband uh, still works um, as a, a, a DOD contractor uh, and the people in my community had no understanding of of my life of our life as a military family so yeah for people who for people who leave active duty uh, for whether, whether they're separating or whether they're retiring and they go off into a military community or into a civilian community that has no ties to a military installation. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's really important. That's key. And uh, and so, you know, part of what we we teach in um, in changing focus, moving from we to me is I, I we have an optional session where I teach people how to uh, to network uh, both online and in person. And it's very important. It's really critical uh, as you uh, transition to be um, to get yourself comfortable enough that you can go and, and meet people uh, and reach out to the, uh, the veteran, the military affiliated organizations in your community. And I don't think, I don't think there's any place in the United States that doesn't have uh, a veterans organization near it. And now there are some uh, veteran organizations like the IAVA that are strictly online. So it's really easy for people to stay connected uh, with people who at least have a similar frame of reference for you know but that 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 wasn't it wasn't what I signed up for I didn't want to quit I didn't want to you know give up on something but but that was certainly a test of patience I think and I, and I think regardless of what you were in in the military I think we can all agree that patience is tested like crazy and you know that is something that two years of training and i and i got out after my first contract um you know and i beat myself up of that i still struggle with it um you know and the reasons why i got out i think are noble you know for family but still that's 
it's tough. That's 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 been really hard. You know, and I've been out for five. I've been out longer than I've been than I was in. And um, you know, here I am five years later talking about something I did. You know, five years ago. Is is the idea of not quitting what kept you uh, and pushed you to to be able to walk that stage? For sure, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and 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 that was that was something that I did not want to. I did not want to quit because I didn't. I don't identify as a quitter. I think that the whole quitting thing is actually it's it's kind of. A, interesting conversation because it's like you know i just finished i just wrapped up two years of quitting alcohol so like at what point are you know quitting the process of deliberately deciding not to do something of course it has a positive and a negative spin but you know i i i that not wanting to quit thing actually in transition has been haunting as well because sometimes we need to actually quit to learn and I think that there's vulnerability in saying, I feel like quitting. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe there's some people out there who never feel that. And I would say, if you've never felt like quitting something, I would question if you've ever done anything worthwhile. You just have to find what works for you. And that might take a while. And it's okay. You're not supposed to get it perfect the first time. If you do, kudos. If you don't, keep it moving. Like, oh, that didn't work. Cross that off and go on to the next thing. Like, you just keep going. You don't stop when you're passionate about something. You just keep going. If it were one or the other, let's say if it were just joining the military does that to you, then everyone would go on to be part of the elite. Everybody would have the desire. So if it were just one ingredient, then... You introduce that variable and everyone goes that direction. If it's the other, then you wouldn't see people rise to occasions like they do. They would just mm-hmm. always be elite and filter out. So it has to be. It has to be. You know, we're all a, a sum and total of our experiences, right? And and that's who we are. And it's it, it's not binary. It's not black and white. It's not this or that. It's this leads to another set of options. Every decision we make, leads to another set of options and then we make choices in that and there's more than one choice and in every situation and so it's kind of like one of those remember the choose your own adventure book oh my gosh yes remember those right yeah. and i think life is like that too it's uh-huh. you get to choose from um and, and when we make good choices we have we're presented with more good choices to choose from for the next step and when we make poor choices, we, uh, we're presented with consequences, which means that the outcome or the choices that we have in that situation is different than if we would have made a good choice. So, yeah. um, you know, that's how life is. And here's what really is interesting to me is when other people's choices, and we take that personal, right? Because we're like, wait a minute, your choices have consequences that affect me. And now I have to kind of adjust. And I think that's, I mean, that's the ultimate of, of, uh, of military training, right? How do we, we train, we train, we train, we train for all possible situations. That way, when someone makes a choice, the enemy introduces a situation or an engine failure or whatever the thing is, we already know how to respond to it. So we, uh, by our preparation, by our training, 
we eliminate the uh, catastrophic failure in the case of variables introduced that we don't have control over. And we so we mitigate. When I was in high school, I was attending college full time my last two years, and I was really interested in the military, but I didn't know anyone in the military. In fact, in Minnesota, there isn't any military bases that I'm familiar with other than guard bases. So I hadn't even been exposed to anything. And there was a guy in one of my classes at the community college that I was going to school at my senior year who had been in the Navy. And I don't know what it was about the Navy that drew my attention, but I, I stopped him after class one day and I said, hey, um, I'm really interested in the military and I was thinking about going in the Navy. What do you think? And he stopped and he said, well, he's like, first of all, he's like, I think you should go in the Air Force. <laughs> he And his words were something like, you know, it's the cleanest, they treat their people the best. And, and at this point it's 1994 probably. And he, he said some comment like, they seem to be more advanced with, you know, women. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I knew that I wanted to go to college. So ROTC was really, in my opinion, the only option because I already, already had two full years of college under my belt. I wasn't going to go apply to the academy. And I really wasn't that familiar with the academy. So I went to the university admissions office at the University of Minnesota. And I said, hey, do you guys have Air Force ROTC? You. I said, yeah, I'm looking for Air Force ROTC. They said, oh, well, you're in luck. Air Force is the first floor, Army is the second floor, Navy's and Marines are the third floor. So I went to the office and they, they gave me all this information on Air Force ROTC. And the thing that attracted me most to it, and this is kind of funny, but because I have a no quit mentality, but they said that, you know, you can try it out and if you don't like it, you can quit. And I think being a high school student, that was really appealing to me. That Not that I could quit, that wasn't the idea. It was the idea that I had choices. I wasn't stuck with anything until I really thought it through and, and had a chance to see what it was like. So I was, I decided that I would try it out the next year. I applied, I got in, I got in and I was in the Air Force ROTC program. And to be honest with you, I never once looked back. Actually, I met Roy in high school. Roy and I are both from military backgrounds. His dad was in the Army, my dad was in the Army, and we moved to Fort Polk. Roy's dad retired in Fort Polk, so that's how I met Roy. So I met Roy, he was a senior, I was a freshman, and then we started dating when I was a junior and he was in college. So that's kind of how that started. So we already had like a background in military or like as military kids. And then Roy and I got married right after my senior year in high school. And we lived in Fayetteville off of Davis Street, which is in Haymont, for about, I want to say, six months. Because shortly after that, I looked at him and I said, well, our rent was $175. So that kind of tells you what kind of area we lived in. And so I said, hey, um, so something's got to give. This is not it. And I mean, we were, we were 
We were pinching pennies. We worked two, three, four jobs, and we were just not, it was not the lifestyle we were used to because our parents were middle class. We had a paycheck on the first and the 15th, you know, like all these amenities and kind of lifestyle we were used to. So Roy said, well, I'll join the military. And in March of 20, or if March of 1999, he went into the military. And um, that kind of started our military journey as adults, I want to say, and from me being a military kid to being a military spouse. Roy was enlisted for six years. We were only stationed in one place, which was Herbert Field, Florida. And then Roy got out and decided to do like an ROTC program so he can come back and commissioned. And um, so he did that in the summer of 2006. And so we're going on 20 years now. To be in the military environment as a kid, what's that like? I mean, for me, and I talk about this, I talked about this the other day with my mom. I was like, you know, it was really cool as a kid. I was just one of those kids. I enjoyed moving. I enjoyed trying new foods. I enjoyed meeting new people, uh, navigating. I'm an extrovert, so it was really cool for me. I was like, yeah, you know, I get to meet new people. I get to, you know, travel. Um, I think it really allowed me in growing up to accept people where they are, how they are. It's true. It's true. I, I really have this, um, people have always asked me, how did you do, how did you get where you got? Cause I don't have a military family. My, none of, neither of my parents finished college, you know, all those things that people want to say create success and they don't necessarily do, but I couldn't really figure it out. I had no idea. I just knew that once I set my mind on something, I was going to do it. So, but in order to go out and speak on how to help people do this, you have to break it down, right? And I'm still doing that. I'm still trying to learn the how behind all of this. And I'm trying to get into more of the science behind the how. But at this point, I'm, I'm still focusing on how did I make all this happen? Like in steps, how did I make this work? I think one of the biggest things I like to address is that no quit mentality. Now, somebody did ask me, they said to me on a podcast, they said, well, what, what if you should quit? What if it really is better? I said, well, of course, there's always a, you know, the, the weapon school answer, as we say in the Air Force, is it, it depends, right? Everything, there's always an it depends. But the bottom line is, if you go through a goal setting plan and you determine this, this, thing, this goal, this thing, you didn't just willy nilly throw a, a dart at it and say, I'm going to go do that because it sounds cool. You actually thought through it and said, I want to do this. Well, once you've done that, I truly believe that quitting should not be in your mind. It will eat up valuable parts of your mind if you keep that thought there. So, I mean, thoughts of quitting, they literally just lead us astray. And I refuse to give up real estate in my mind to that thought because it'll just start taking up more and more space and your mind will keep going back to, well, I could quit. Well, I could quit. Well, I could quit. And then you start thinking about all the things. If you quit, you wouldn't have to do A, B, C, and D. And these are the things you don't really want to be doing. This whole time though, now you're not focusing on what, on what you need to be focusing on. And you're actually, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And part of this, I learned just in my military training because there was lots of things that even look, even though looking back, I guess ultimately I could have quit. You can't really quit. You don't, you don't really quit in the military. You just, you don't have that option. And so I think just eliminating that 
thought out of my mind gave me so much more momentum to press on, even when things got really tough, even if I felt like I was the bottom of the class or whatever it might be. And looking back on other, looking at other people as an instructor pilot, I think is a helpful perspective because here I am looking at a student who's really, really struggling because sometimes it's hard. They're getting sick. They don't understand, you know, the avionics, whatever it might be that they're struggling with. Everybody has their points. But so here they are struggling and they go, well, I could just quit. I think I'll just quit. This is too much for me. If I decide to quit, then it's my decision and it was in my court and, and I didn't fail out and they quit. Then you got the other student who's working their tail off and maybe a couple weeks later, they wash out. They don't make it. Do you know who I look at with more respect? The person bailed out. It's so hard to see that when we're the ones sitting in that seat, which is why you need to pull yourself mm -hmm. out of the seat, look at it from the outside and go, I'm going to keep going. Because if you keep going, you might not quit. Or you might not, sorry, you might not bail out. And you'll be so proud of yourself when you get through whatever it is that you're trying to get through. You know, but if you do fail, at least, you know, you gain mm -hmm. everything. You'll never question. Marines already pride themselves on being the few, the proud, the Marines. And then there's women who are Marines. What's that like? What's something that you think people kind of misunderstand about women serving? Well, I think certainly in the past 20 years, the perceptions have changed of of how and why women would want to serve. I think when I joined, this was in 1992, 93, I told people I was joining the Marines. I said, well, why would you want to do that? That's crazy. Why would you want to put yourself through that? So I thought, well, why not? Why take the easy road, right? So um, that's my that's my story. I was just following in the footsteps of my grandfather and my grandmother, and it seemed like a logical thing to do. I wasn't a good student. I had no interest in really uh, doing well in school. So uh, not that that equals going into the military, but I just needed a challenge. I think that's what it was. I needed physical challenge. I needed to um, meet new people and. That was the best way. It was just a calling for me. But in the last 20 years, as you know, prior to 9-11, there wasn't the constant steady state of uh, deploying and women serving. You had tail hook. You had a lot of instances where females were more of a hindrance. And so it was a real challenging time to try to fit in or stand out or be accepted and didn't know the secret handshake. So now I think the, the past 20 years have proved that women can, are willing to suit up, kid up, go forward and bear the burden and risk it all just as much as, as men and want that challenge. And so the perceptions have changed, whether it's females um, being fighter pilots or going through ranger school or um, other challenge, uh, taking it to the next level. Um, but I think that why, why would a woman want to serve is if you're patriotic and you want to meet new people and travel and serve your country, those are all just as legitimate questions to ask a young man than as a young woman. And so the burden is all of ours as Americans to serve our country. So however you do that, 
in whatever shape or form is something that all people is the the game now is not just for the burden is no longer just on men so um to be an infantry that's not how we're gonna we're gonna win wars uh going forward whether you're um driving a ship or you're um a fighter pilot um there are jobs for women that have we've really moved the needle in the last 20 years so then I had six months to transition out. Well, you know, just go through the class, the TAPS class of learning how to write a resume, get my affairs in order, um, you know, transitioning from the position I was in. It was just all these things that, you know, six months goes by really quick. And I should have been prepared but I was not because I wasn't, I was really feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't ready mentally at all. And, but, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I think I was just trying to mentally prepare for what was to come next. And I didn't know how, you know, I, I really didn't. I was, I just kept going to work, kept doing my job, kept acting like, <laughs> no time left but it really was just spent trying to do everything to get out you know you have to still turn in your gear you still have to um you have to do all the the things to do to out process for for good it wasn't like i was moving to another duty assignment i was getting out and so it was very it was very emotional it was a very difficult thing to do so it was really hard because I missed it. I missed having to get up. I say having to, because that was what we did. We had to get up and go to PT. So I missed that structure. I missed the camaraderie. I missed putting on that uniform. So I, I really, I went through a really d dark depression. I really did because I felt like I lost my identity. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was no longer Major Wittenberger. I was just in that. And then I was a military spouse with a dependent ID card, which was really hard for me. It was really weird to be in that position because I just never knew how. And I never really prepared myself for it. So, um, you know, I, I, I really, I, I did. I sulked for like six months. I didn't write a resume. I didn't really look for a job. I literally sat on the couch every day and woke up just to take the kids to school and come back and, and not have a sense of purpose. And so it took me a long time to change roles, put on the different hat and figure out how to be just a mom and not the mom spouse soldier. And you know, it was just, it, it was really hard. So after, you know, six months or so, I, that's when I decided to start writing my thoughts down because I did not feel like I had an outlet. I had no one to talk to. I didn't think like anybody, that anybody could understand. And I really wanted the pain to go away because it was really, it really hurt. Like in my soul, it really, really hurt to try to figure out 
what was I going to do? Cause I had no plan anymore. I thought I knew what I wanted, but I felt completely lost. I, it's a challenging lifestyle. It's, it's difficult. There's going to be ups and downs, but we also have to remember that the people we meet, you know, they're, we're all in it together and we understand but you have to, I think you really have to learn patience, patience, grace, faith, grit, all of that. It changes you and it, it makes you into a stronger version of yourself because there are things that you will go through that not many other people don't understand or have experienced it. So going in I you know I was both so I didn't go in just as a spouse I also went in as a soldier so I had to learn how to how to do both so I but now you know I'm I don't want to say I'm just a veteran but now I'm on the other side and I am that spouse so I have to learn how to understand that now it's just him you know doing all the behind the scenes work that not many people know about so I have to have patience and learn to understand from this this aspect from this side so it's just it's a lot that comes with it you have to learn to communicate you have to have to learn to have patience have you know have grace on yourself when you get overwhelmed because it it could really consume you. This lifestyle could really consume you. It has changed everything about my life. How I perceive being a parent and how you align with mission. Um, I wish I had understood that more. So when I was a troop commander, not that I'm, you know, there was only a handful of women in my unit to begin with. Only, I think twice did two of my female soldiers became pregnant and had their children while I was a troop commander. You know, I would like to think that I didn't make it difficult for them, but I don't think I necessarily advocated for them and made it easier. And I wish I understood what it truly meant to be a mom in uniform when I was younger. Uh, things that I would have ad- advocated harder for them just because you just don't know what you don't know. Having kids does change the way you look at life, at the way you look at how you provide for them. And I've always said this, the military is a very unique organization. It's an amazing organization filled with opportunities, but it is a certain type of lifestyle and it's hard and it can be hard for your children. And I think those are things you got to think about. Besides me saying I didn't want to be a mom when I was younger, I wanted to achieve certain things in my career. And for me, that was being a troop commander. And I just felt that I had to dedicate myself as a leader to my soldiers. I, I, I like to drink uh, 
veteran-owned coffee, if possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, supporting other veterans. What I think is amazing, though, is how many veterans who start businesses, how many of them are coffee shops? Yeah, I talked to someone last week that said that uh, it's because veterans live uh, and work so many places where the coffee sucks that when they get out, all they can think about is having good coffee, and so they end up doing it themselves. Um, I mean, I like recently uh, Dope Coffee out of Atlanta, kind of like a coffee hip-hop fusion brand. Um, okay. Marine Corps veteran uh, runs that. And then I just recently met the guy who runs a One Nation Coffee out of Charleston. They, they roast and bag their own beans, and they got some good stuff. In Charleston, South Carolina? Yeah. Yeah, the guy's a the guy's a EOD senior chief who run who uh, co owns it. He came okay. and brought his some of his people and some of his grind up, and we uh, we had an event at the end of last week, Thursday and Friday of last week. And he, they were our coffee sponsors, so it's always good to get a cup of veteran coffee. My two brothers and I playing, my mother, and everything was, even though we were poor, everything felt good. Everything felt safe until my mother walked away from us. And um, when he beat me, when he told me how disgusting I was and that I could not find anyone else that would love me in this world, I believed him. Why me feeling so proud now now proud in an egotistical way, but just proud that I can say that I served for 32 and a half years. My two brothers and I playing, my mother, and everything was, even though we were poor, everything felt good. Everything felt safe until my mother walked away from us. And um, when he 
beat me when he told me how disgusting I was and that I could not find anyone else that would love me in this world, I believed him. Why me feeling so proud now? Not proud in an egotistical way, but just proud that I can say that I served for 32 and a half years. Fast forward to when, you know, her last few months or years of life, what, what was that like? Um, as you, as you, she approached, uh, death. So from the time in the seventies until she was probably around 90, she would go out and give talks to schools and things in her uniform. She went to the White House multiple times. And since she lived near Washington, DC, she was always getting invited to, you know, represent the WASP at different events. She was always very busy and active in this, in this thing. When she was about, 90 or so is when she really got to the point where she couldn't really go out and do these things anymore. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer around age, I want to say like 85. And she seemed fine for quite a few years, but then it started really getting to her. And the last few years were, you know, she started deteriorating somewhat quickly, but she lived nearby. And I used to take her to the VA medical center in Washington, DC to do her chemo treatment sometimes. And we kind of my uncle and my mom, you know, our different members of the family would help her take her to her appointments and that type of thing. So I, I went quite a few times to take her to her appointments and she was, it was like being with a rock star at the VA medical center. It was really weird. Like people would be like, Oh my gosh, are you a wasp? And they all, all want to talk to her like while I'm wheeling her into chemo. <laughs> and I'm like, Grant, I would be like, Yami, we have to like come a little earlier to your appointments because all these people want to like take pictures with you and like talk to you. So, you know, we have to be on time to chemo. And um, they actually, VA did an interview with her once and while she was at chemo one time and talked about the WASP and it's on the VA medical center blog somewhere. Um, Yeah. She actually liked going to, to, to her chemo treatment because she was mostly in the house all the time by then. She liked going to VA. She said she liked seeing all the other veterans and talking to them about their different service and meeting lots of people because she was always by herself at the house. It's like her social time. She's like, chemo's not that bad. I get to see a lot of people. I'm like, okay, grandma. (laughs) I guess you always have to have that positive spin on things. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now, at what point in time is, I think, the Congressional Gold Medal? When did that come about? So I will say, um, Nicole Malakowski, if you know who she is, she was, um, the first female Thunderbird pilot. She was assigned as a, a White House fellow in 2000, I guess 2008, 2009 timeframe. And her project she decided to work on was to try to get the Women Air Force Service pilots the Congressional Gold Medal. Uh, because you have to, in order to do that, you have to get a bill passed through Congress and then signed by the president awarding this medal. So that was her project. So she wrote the bill and walked around Congress and, and got a bunch of people to agree that the WASP indeed deserved the Congressional Gold Medal and got it signed by President Obama. And my grandmother was actually invited to be in the Oval Office when he signed the bill. And Nicole obviously was there too because she was there at the time. 
and two other WASP were there, B. Haydu and Lorraine Rogers in the office. And then there were a couple other um, Air Force women that were um, there while he signed the bill. So, uh, yeah. And then at that point, I think they were on the front page of the Washington Post after that bill got um, signed. And then they, that was in the summer of 2009. And then the following March in 2010, they actually had the ceremony at the Capitol and passed the, you know, had the, the, the like ceremonial medal that I think is in the Smithsonian. And then they, everyone got like these replica medals. And my grandmother went to that and Nicole was there and she spoke. And I didn't get to go to that because I was in California, I think, and I was coming back soon. I couldn't come, but my sister went, my mom and a couple of my relatives and, I think like 300 wasp went, something like that, maybe more. And a lot of their families. Anyway, it was a lot of people. So it was a big deal. And from that point forward, the wasp really got a lot more well known. Like people learned about them more because they were in newspapers and people were talking about them. And so from that point forward, there were a lot of um, more opportunities that they were offered to go speak and, and do documentaries and things. So that was a good way to get people to learn about what they had done. Mm-hmm. 